morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, turn over to the book of Esther, chapter 3, as we continue our study in this amazing book. Uh, if you've got to use one of the Pew Bibles, open up to page 383 is where you'll find Esther, chapter 3. For hundreds of years, both Jews and Christians had wrestled with the place of Esther and how it fits into Holy Scripture. And, and as a matter of fact, so pronounced is this difficulty, in 1947 when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran, Israel, do you realize that that particular Jewish group, the Essenes, back in the probably 3rd to 3rd century BC on, collected every book of the Old Testament. In that collection, we found fragments or sections of every book of the Old Testament with the exception of Esther. Esther, we even have an entire copy of the prophet Isaiah, but when it comes to the book of Esther, not a single piece of Esther was found. Similarly, in the New Testament, it was about 400 years, you got that? Okay. 400 years, uh, the Christian church had very little to say about Esther. In fact, in our particular theological tradition, kind of a Reformed theological tradition, we, if we're going to be honest, probably don't like Esther. For example, John Calvin never preached one message from this book. And if you know anything about Calvin, that says a lot because Calvin preached about everything, everywhere. He even preached about grammatical verbal tenses, and he never spread, preached one, recit, one message in Esther. Martin Luther was characteristically hostile to the book of Esther. What can I say? He was a cranky monk. Uh, many Christians through the years tried to figure out how Esther fit in the Bible, and while they got the ball down the field, eventually they would fumble. Liberal Christians have tried to appropriate the book of Esther as a call to resist male patriarchy and to call down the power structures of society. Charismatic Pentecostal Christians would use Esther as an illustration of how we combat in spiritual warfare. Evangelicals would moralize Esther and say, we have to watch the main characters of the book about how we behave in hard times. Or other evangelicals would politicize the book of Esther and say that it's a book about a call against anti-Semitism and why we should be pro-Israel. Now, is there something in this book about power disparity in society? There is. We saw that last week. Is there something in this book to teach us about spiritual warfare? Kind of a broad sense, you could say. Is there something about this book, about Mordecai and Esther, that's worth copying? Yeah, at, at a broad level, overall trajectory of life, you could make that case. Is there something in this book that teaches us about anti-Semitism? Yes, in the sense that we should stand up and against all forms of racial or ethnic disdain and prejudice. All those things are there in some sense. That's why they get the traction they do. But all of them miss the point. In making these good issues the issue in the book of Esther, the true message of this book gets eclipsed, and now God's redemptive work through His Son, and we'll see that in a bit, is moved to the side, and now God's salvation has been redefined as either moralism or hyper-spirituality or a, a call against and fight against all forms of abuse and racism not realizing that all of these are only the symptoms of the human rot in our soul and not the actual disease, which the Bible's message makes loud and clear is sin and our need to be delivered from it. You see, the, the answer, the key to uh, Esther 
which the reformers had uh, mistakenly helped us figure out by completely ignoring it. In other words, by, by kind of saying, we're not going to bother with Esther at all, it had forced Christians to continue to labor with the question, how does this book make sense in the Bible? The answer is not to politicize it. The answer is not to allegorize it. The answer is not to moralize it. The answer is to gospelize it. And what I mean by that is to see Esther in the larger context of God's ultimate redemptive plan for humanity most, seenly, most clearly seen in the work of Jesus Christ. Which means when we study Esther, we, not just ask, we don't just ask, what is the immediate context? How does Esther fit into the Old Testament? We have to take a step back and say, how does Esther fit in all of the Bible? When you do this, things that may not have made sense immediately begin to give you some perspective. It's kind of like when, you know, if you're a parent, you, you understand this experience. You might talk with your wife and say, why does our kid do this? Or why does he do that? I, I don't do that at all. Where does he get that from? And your wife will say, oh, my sister does that, you know, or your brother does that all the time. Broadening out the context can help what makes seeming a little confusing in front of you make a little bit more sense. And you go, oh, that's why our kids got all the problems. It's your side of the family. Um, friends, at, at the heart of the book of Esther lies a conflict that is at, a, at the heart of the entire Bible. A conflict between two sides, a conflict between two communities, a conflict between two peoples, a conflict between two realities. It is the realization of this cosmic redemptive struggle that helps us begin to realize and unlock the key to understanding Esther. You see, in its simplest forms, Esther chapter 3, one of the chapters we're looking at today, is the plot to kill God's people. And Esther chapter 4 is the plan to save God's people. That's it in its essence. And friends, you can trace that arc, that cosmic redemptive struggle between two communities all through the whole of the Bible, can't you? Whether it's all the way in the book of Genesis, where it's Cain who rejected Yahweh's word and killed Abel, or Pharaoh who drowned all the children of the Hebrews, all the way through the New Testament where Herod slaughters all the male children of the Jews in an attempt to kill Jesus, through to Jesus' own warnings in John 15 and 16 that whoever would be one of His that the world, this world, would hate all the way up through Revelation 13 where we see the beast seeking to destroy the people of God. You can trace this fight backwards and forwards, and it's almost on every page of Scripture. What we're going to read this morning, hopefully what maybe you've read this week in Esther's chapter 3 and 4, is just another skirmish in this larger cosmic battle. Friends, Esther isn't just some nice Bible history that if you tend to go to church, you kind of like to know the history of these things. Esther is the story of humanity. It's your history. But in order for us to feel this book, we cannot just talk about the cosmic conflict alone. We have to feel the crisis, and where we feel that crisis most keenly is at chapter 4, 
at Esther's moment of conviction to act. And it is at that moment we are encouraged to see God's larger plan of salvation working amongst His people. So this morning, as we jump into these two chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 4, we are going to study, learn something of the conflict, the crisis, conviction, and Christ how it all leads to Him and God's ultimate plan to save humanity. Let's take a look at the first one. Uh, if you have it, your Bible's open to Esther chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. We're going to take a look at the long-standing conflict that we're immediately reintroduced to. Here we are, chapter 3. Keep in mind, what just happened was Queen uh, Esther's become queen, Mordecai discovers a plot to, king, to kill, assassinate King Ahasuerus, and then it kind of, the camera pans over to chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Okay, I want you to notice something real quick. Do you remember and notice how these two men have been introduced to us in Scripture? By the way, here's a Bible study hit tip. Whenever someone's introduced, really, this is if you're reading literature, you know how to do this, but since most American, uh, English literature is based on Scripture, it makes sense. When a character is introduced, how they're introduced is very key to the role he or she will play in the narrative. Notice how both Haman and Mordecai have been introduced. In chapter 2, verse 5, this is how Mordecai was introduced. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. And then chapter 3, what we just read, how Haman is introduced. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha. Now, Mordecai is a descendant, some of you know, of King Saul, right? He is probably the most famous son of Kish, the tribe of Benjamites. Mordecai, coming from King Saul, Haman is a descendant from the Amalekites, where we get the term Agagite from King Agag, the most well-known Amalekite. Why is this important? Let me give you the story. Uh, keep your finger in, in, in Esther. We're going to do some Bible hopping here. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I'm taking you all the way to the beginning here. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Make your way there. Keep in mind, we're talking about this conflict. If you know the narrative, Genesis chapter 3 is when it all goes sideways. God creates a perfect creation, perfect harmony, perfect beauty, perfect fellowship, and man, not wanting to submit himself to God, wants to be God, rejects that, and eats from what's called the, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin enters the world, and that judgment upon us. In chapter 3, verse 15, we get the first hints of the gospel, where the Lord says, He's speaking now to Adam and Eve and the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. I'm going to put enmity, a rivalry, a rivalry between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Right out of the gate, we're introduced to a messianic hope. There's going to be someone who's going to come, and you see it in the next verse, and you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. At one and the same time, he's talking about a one particular individual but he's also setting us up. There's going to be enmity. 
There's going to be these offspring, and there's going to be those offspring, and they are going to be rivals, and they are going to be at war with one another. Right as in Genesis 3, we're introduced to the conflict. Now, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham responding in faith to the Lord, being called out to, to trust the Lord as God is going to make that offspring come to pass, he's doing it through a people. And in so chapter 12 of Genesis, God says to Abram, I'm going to bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Why is God saying this? Because he knows through Abraham is going to come the seed, through Abraham is the offspring, through Abraham is the Messiah, through Abraham is Jesus Christ. God needs to protect this small little family, this fledgling family in a chaotic dark world. I'm going to protect you no matter what because my plan is coming through you. Those who bless you, I'm going to bless, and those who curse you, I'm going to come against them. Centuries later, Exodus chapter 17, Israel becomes a nation. You know the story. Uh, Charlton Heston delivers them from Egypt, and they're coming on out. You know, it's Moses, right? And, and they're this fledgling nation. Abraham's family is now a nation, but they're still weak. They're a slave nation. And in Exodus chapter 17, one group of people, they have the dubious distinction of being the first nation to say, we're going to wipe out the Jews. They were called the Hebrews then. We're wiping out the Hebrews. And guess who they were? the Amalekites. So this fledgling nation that comes out of Egypt is mercilessly attacked by the Amalekites. And God says, no, no, I remember my promise to Abraham to be your protector and your shield. I'm going to fight and push back against the Amalekites. And they kind of have this humongous, uh, sorry, this large battle, and these Israelites win over the Amalekites. Don't mess with the people God loves. He makes His promise. You were the first people to come against my people, the apple of my eye. I'm going to utterly wipe you out of the planet. Centuries after that, Israel grows strong. Israel gets a king, and God commands Saul the king, I promised Abraham, centuries ago, I promised the people of Israel, centuries ago, that anyone who attacked you, I would be your protector and shield, and Amalek was the first to try to wipe you out, and so I'm going to pay back Amalek. Saul, take Amalek out. Saul, son of Kish. Do you remember Mordecai? He's a descendant of the son of Kish, a Benjamite. God commands Saul to wipe out Amalek, but Saul fails to do so. And as a result, God removes Saul as being king. It's not because God is holding to some high standard and just getting, losing his temper because Saul disobeyed. No, Saul was going back. Saul was basically going back on God's word. And he said, I can't have a king who will do that. I keep my promises. I keep my word. And if you represent me, you do the same. And he had Saul removed as king. You see here the command to wipe out the Amalekites, and you see how Saul took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and spared him. The term Agag became Agagite and became synonymous for the Amalekites, which became synonymous for anyone who opposes the Jews. As late as the first century, we have Jewish writings referring to the Roman occupiers as the Agagites. More to the point, as, early, as late as recently as the 1990s in the New York Times, there's an article referring to the modern-day tensions between Israel and Arabs as the historic tension between the Jew and Amalek, just in the 1990s. 
The point is, as we get back to Esther, that conflict of the ages is right there. And as scholars, theologians, pastors looked at Esther, they realized this is the key. Esther is reminding us of this cosmic conflict that's going back and forth. It's reminding us that God keeps His promises, and we're seeing that in a microscopic form between Haman and Mordecai, and we're seeing at the macrocosm level of Haman's hatred towards all the Jews. There's the conflict, the antagonism between those who would seek to serve Yahweh, serve the Lord, and those who reject Yahweh, reject the Lord. In our text, it's between Haman and Mordecai, the nation of Israel, the nation of Amalek, but Jesus brings this home. I want you to go to John's Gospel. Keep your finger in Esther, go all the way into the New Testament, fourth book of the New Testament, John's Gospel, John chapter 15. Listen to what Jesus says, because He's talking about this conflict. John chapter 15, picking it up in verse 18, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And friends, this age-old conflict that rages everywhere at all times erupts into crisis. So that's the conflict. That's the cosmic conflict between the offspring of the enemy and the offspring of those who would choose to serve the Lord. And we see it through every page of Scripture, and that conflict will always cause crisis in your life because you constantly have to answer the question, whom will I obey? Whom will my heart's allegiance be given to? How will I live? It's no different for you. It's no different for me. It is no different for Esther or for Mordecai or the Jews of Persia, as we'll soon see. Let's take a look at the crisis now that ensues because of this long-standing conflict. We'll pick it up in verse, verse 3. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Skip down to verse 8. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not king, keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. 
If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Okay, let's stop real quick. Let me just unpack some things here. Number one, uh, notice he talks about this. This is where I love the historicity of the Bible. They have these details tucked in there that confuse us because it's such a different culture and time. But when you understand what's going on, you think, yeah, this has got to be real. Why else would they put this in there? He talks about putting in 10,000 talents of, of uh, uh, what's he say, 10,000 talents into the king's treasury. Basically, that amounts to about 300 tons of silver, Okay. So a, a, a talent is about 75 pounds of silver, so 10,000. We're looking at about 300, 320 tons of silver. Now, there's no way Haman has 300 tons of silver. So this has got to be hyperbole. Uh, 300 tons of silver is roughly about two-thirds of the empire's annual revenue. So there's no way one man has this much money. So what's going on? What Haman is saying is, king, we got to get rid of these people, and I'm going to put a lot of money into the treasury, partly because Haman realizes we're going to wipe out a good part of your tax base. But don't worry, I got this thing covered. I'm going to put in tons of money into the treasury, so you're not going to miss out on anything. So I love the detail that the Bible puts in here. Also notice the way Haman, and I think this is so true in our, our polarized day, notice the way Haman talks about the Jews. He, he, he partly gives a, a, a truth about them, that they're different. Then he kind of spins a half-truth, and because they're different, they're really difficult. And then he gives a full-on lie, and because they're difficult, they're dangerous, get rid of them. And I thought, that's just how kind of our culture works. We lead with truths, kind of have a half-truth, and then a whole misleading statement, and, and, and changing people's narratives and opinions. Friends, we can't do that. We can't walk the way of Haman. Even with people you disagree with, we have to represent their views charitably and accurately, right? Because that's what Haman does. He kind of leads with the truth to get you in, then he kind of spins the truth, and then he gives you a lie. But by that time, you're already in hook, line, and sinker, and that's what happens with King Ahasuerus here. Let's pick it up again in, in verse 13. So, so, so Haman tells the king, there's this people, they're different than us, they're difficult from us, they're dangerous to us, we got to get rid of them, king. And, and I will make it up to you. I'm going to put money in the treasury. And King Ahasuerus says, all right, Haman, you just take care of it. Here's my signet ring, gives you the authority, do what you need to do. And so they write letters and send it through the land to wipe out the Jews. Here we are in verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out, verse 15, hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. No joke. Notice the totality of Haman's hatred for the Jews. Did you notice in verse 13, just the piling on of all those verbs, to destroy, and if that didn't give you the message, to kill them, and if that still wasn't clear, to annihilate them. 
I mean, he's like getting the point across. I don't want any of them around. And not just all the Jews, to make it very clear that I mean all, I'm talking the young ones, the old ones, the male ones, the female ones, the children, get rid of them all. Haman's hatred is complete. Is he seeing Mordecai as his preeminent enemy, the son of Saul? I don't know. Surely he would know that history, but the conflict is there, and it blew up into this crisis, a crisis beyond anything anyone in this room could imagine. If you were a Jew, talk about feeling absolutely powerless. Talk about feeling like a victim of an unjust and prejudiced system. Remember, we talked about last week, where are you going to go? You saw the map. Where are you going to run to if you're a Jew in the Persian Empire? We talked about it. You can't escape. Can you imagine living in a society where you knew some, at least some, maybe all, the people you were interacting with? Keep in mind, the edict was given the first month of the year. The day of the purge is the last month of the year. For an entire year, the people you're interacting with, you don't know which ones, the ones at the grocery store, the ones walking in your neighborhood, maybe the ones playing with your kids at the park, how many of these behind closed doors are planning, waiting for the day, sanctioned by the government, that they're going to eliminate you, your children, family, and they get to take anything they, that you have left behind, and the government is endorsing this for a year, and you can't go anywhere, even if you wanted to escape. We can't even imagine that. Unfortunately, history's given us too many examples to tell us that this too easily has happened. What Esther's recording is what happened in the 5th century B.C. The news recorded something very similar in the 1970s in the same location. You remember, those of you who are old enough, when the Ayatollahs came into power in Iran, and the church faced massive and fierce persecution. I have friends who are refugees of that persecution. We have in our fellowship brothers and sisters who are fleeing from that regime. Some of these persecutions we remember, some we've forgotten. Did you know Pyongyang? You all know what Pyongyang is, right? Did you know Pyongyang used to be called the Jerusalem of the East? That Pyongyang was a thriving center of Christian faith until the communist regime wiped out the church so thoroughly that the world no longer remember, remembers that the north of Korea was a stronghold of gospel proclamation. From Iran to Korea, ancient times to modern times, the people of God have been crushed, oppressed, and persecuted. In my short life, I've personally been there with the persecuted church in Africa and China and seen the persecution, one from the communist government, the other from the sword of Islam. Persecution exists against the people of God. And friends, nothing raises the question of where is God and what is He doing, like persecution specifically, or it's just suffering in general. We may or may not face that kind of persecution. I know Steve's family has. Was it your, your Hungarian side, your, your father or your grandfather? 
face the persecution of the communist regime. We may not face that kind of physical persecution, but we do face suffering, and it always leads to a crisis. And like Mordecai, and to deal with his crisis, he understandably looks to Esther to help in the situation. Let's look at chapter 4. Now, chapter 4, I kind of, what I want to do is I want to read through bits of chapter 4 to keep the narrative flow going, but I'm going to jump around, so just let me kind of, we're going to run, work, work through it and talk about it. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, so he found out about Haman's plot. He found out that Haman had a personal grudge against Mordecai, and he wasn't satisfied just to come against Mordecai, but wanted to wipe out all the Jews. When he learned that all had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, the traditional sign of mourning after someone died, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate, gate clothed in sackcloth. And so Mordecai goes mourning and grieving, crying out. Esther finds out that her, her, her cousin's at the king's gate in sackcloth and ashes. And what, what's going on? She doesn't know. So she sends new clothes to Mordecai so he can come in. But Mordecai refuses it and tells um, Hatak, who, who Esther is one of her eunuchs, she dispatches him to talk to Mordecai. And Mordecai gives to Hatak a copy of the document because Esther doesn't know what's going on. Verse 8, Mordecai also gave Hatak a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And so, so, so Mordecai tells Hatak, communicate this to Esther. Go to Ahasuerus and plead with the king. We're all going to die. You have to save us. What does Esther say? Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Slow down here. Dial it back. You don't know what you're asking me, Mordecai. You don't, you don't just walk into the king's presence. Nobody gets to just show up in front of the king. If they show up in front of the king unsummoned, it's the death penalty. Unless he extends his scepter, I'm going to die if I walk in there because he hasn't called for me. And by the way, he hasn't called for me for 30 days. I don't think he's too much into me anymore. I'm not doing this. Let's pick it up at verse 12. Hatak comes back, communicates this to Mordecai. And, when they, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. And she says to them, have them fast for three days, and then I'm going to go to the king, and all my, my attendants will fast for three days, and, and, and then I'm going to go. All right. We can understand Esther's predicament in some way, can't we? Think about this. If she pleads for the Jews, then her identity as being one of them is going to be revealed which up to this point, she's kept her identity hidden for between four to six years of marriage. And we know that because of the time markers. Notice how the author's always putting time markers in here. Chapter 2, verse 16, when she went in for that infamous audition, 
It was the third year of his reign, or even seventh year of his reign, right? In chapter 3 here, verse 7, we're told it's the twelfth year of his reign. So Queen Esther's been the queen. She's been with the king for between four to six years, depending on how you count those years, the, the time. And this whole time, she's been hiding her identity from Ahasuerus. Okay, we know what Ahasuerus did to a disobedient wife. What do you think he's going to do to a deceptive wife? If Vashti got exiled because she didn't show up when she was summoned, what happens to Esther who shows up when she's not summoned? Okay, there's a dilemma here. And we know Ahasuerus, he has a bit of a short fuse, right? Esther, as a queen, let's be honest, she's just a trophy wife. Esther is just more for the king's prestige and his reputation and his pleasure. He is not there. They, they are not. Don't think of uh, ancient marriages the way we tend to think of marriages, right? It was not the same kind of thing. Marriages were more for political expediency, alliances, and just kind of getting through life to have kids to help you with the farm. It wasn't the kind of thing we understand today where, oh, man, love, love, love. That's not how it was. It was, oh, you're a fine specimen. You can probably have a lot of kids. Let's get married. we got a big farm. That, that's the reality. And so there wasn't this kind of affection and affinity between king and queen that you might expect. You don't just walk in and ask the king like a favor like our wives ask of us. Like, hey, honey, on your way home from the citadel, would you stop the genocide of the Jews and then get some bread from Ralph's? Kisses, you're the best. It doesn't work that way. You don't walk into the presence of the king. Persian law forbids it. Her hidden identity complicates it, and his fuse threatens it. Esther is at a defining moment. She is at a defining moment right now. Is she going to choose to retreat into self-protective safety and silence and let all of her people perish? Or will she have the conviction to do what's right, risk it all by walking into the throne room to plead for mercy for these others? Option one, she saves herself. Everyone else dies. Option two, she saves others, but risks her own death in doing so. Friends, this is the, these defining moments, they're, they're going to mark the Christian life. Let's get back to that conflict of the ages. If you're a Christian, you're going to have defining moments, and they will mark your Christian life. They may not be on the level of national genocide, but make no mistake, you will have them. Maybe you're a young Christian high school girl, and you see another girl, not not beautiful enough, not popular enough, not good enough, and she's become the butt of jokes, being mistreated, being ridiculed. Option one, just retreat in the self-protective silence and don't get involved. And she goes through her years ridiculed, humiliated. Option two, you risk ostracizing yourself with her by befriending her, coming alongside her and taking what comes with it. Maybe you work at a, a firm and employees or clients or shareholders are being cheated thousands of dollars. Option one, 
you can retreat in the self-protective silence. Don't say anything. Save yourself. And all these people suffer. Option two, you become the whistleblower. And you save others. Maybe you risk your job. Or at the very least, you're standing in the firm or the company. It's a defining moment. A friend in crisis who, who needs help. And it's going to require significant sacrifice on your part and inconvenience. Option one, retreat into self-protective silence. Don't get involved. Continue to have your conflict-free, comfortable life. Besides, salvation may come from someplace else, you think, while they suffer. Option two, you get involved. You risk the messiness. You risk the blowback that might come from others involved, bringing inconvenience into your life, but no doubt comfort and blessing into theirs. It's a defining moment. It doesn't have to be genocide for make us to wrestle through. Man, retreating in the self-protective silence seems pretty good right now because to stand up and speak out risks losing things for myself. Friends, if you are a Christian, how do you handle the defining moments of your life? Is it going to be conviction or convenience or, or comfort that guides you? Will you seek to save yourself by not saying anything, by retreating into safety and silence? Or will you find a way to have that conviction, to stand up and speak out and try to save others? How do you decide in that moment? Like I said at the very beginning, if you're a good evangelical, you might be tempted to say, well, if Esther can do it, well, so can I. That's a good option. Here's a better one. Look to the one that Esther points us to. You see, Esther's defining moment was just the shadow of the most defining moment in all of history. But this moment did not take place at a Persian gate. This moment took place at a garden in Palestine, a garden called Gethsemane. In Matthew chapter 26, history met a fork in the road where the fate of every man, woman, and child in this room and the whole world hung in the balance. It's where Jesus said, I don't want to do this. I really don't. If there's any way that you can make this pass from me, make it happen. But it's not what I will. It's what you will. And if Jesus retreated, he would have saved himself. And the whole world would have perished in sin. But he put his own life on the line. And because he did that, it would be the salvation of all of God's people. But unlike Esther, who might perish, Jesus must perish, and he knew it. Option one, save himself. Everyone else perishes. Option two, save us and perish himself. See, when Jesus faced this defining moment, he met it with resolute conviction because he knew the only way to end the conflict of the ages was through total victory, and the road to total victory meant his total surrender to the will of the Father, which meant his death. There was going to be no golden scepter extended to him to grant him mercy or to spare his life. Jesus went to the cross knowing in order to spare us, he must not be spared. 
But he would accomplish a salvation so much greater than Esther's from a foe so much worse than Haman. He would accomplish an eternal, joyous salvation from sin and eternal death. And friends, just like chapter 4, verse 13 of our text, as, as Mordecai helped Esther put her defining moment in the broader context of a larger perspective to see all of her defining moments in that perspective, she made the right decision. We too have to see our defining moments in the larger perspective of what God is doing because only then, only then does that kind of sacrifice, difficulty, and self-imposed suffering make any sense at all. Right? That's how it makes sense as a Christian to run the numbers and do the calculus because Jesus was ostracized for us so that we would never be ostracized from the Father. When you think about how silly it is that we, we live to be accepted by people that, that half we don't even know or like, but we do all kinds of things just so we can stay in. And she just says, you don't need to do that. I suffered ostracization so you would never know that, that the only one whose opinion matters, you're in. And Jesus suffered the loss of everything so we would gain everything in Him. You don't have to cling on to the things of this world as if these are the things that matter. I matter, and I have it all to give to you. Jesus entered the messiness of our life, friends, so we could enter the joy of His. It's only when you realize these things do you have what it takes to say, yeah, I'll suffer this ostracization. I'll become the friend of this person who's being ridiculed. Yeah, I'll suffer the loss of whatever this might mean to do the right thing. Yeah, I'll walk into the messiness of this person's life even though my life is comfortable and clean and I like it that way. Why? Well, not only because Jesus did it for me, but because Jesus took care of all of those major things that worry me. I don't have to worry about it. Friends, our defining moments have to be seen in this greater perspective of God's redeeming of humanity through the gospel we proclaim and embody. And when we face those crises of our life that this conflict is inevitably going to bring up, we don't retreat into self-protective silence and safety. No, we participate in God's redeeming plan of saving humanity. Friends, that is what Esther 3 and 4 is telling us. It's just a bigger version of what you and I are going to go through every day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though you have cloaked this amazing truth in an amazing story, we realize that this isn't just for us to enjoy what Esther did and cheer her on, but it's to make us realize this is what you intend to do in this world through us. Father, when we face these defining moments, help us to see the broader perspective that, Lord, we don't have to worry about the loss of things of this world because we have it in Christ. Help us to associate with the low, the lowly, and those without because you did. Help us to walk into the messiness of life because that's what you do and that's where your glory is seen. Father, how radical this church, the world would see the church as we were gripped by this reality. Father, we thank you that Esther did what was right, but we thank you more importantly that she points us to Jesus Christ who denied himself so that we would know your salvation. And it's in his name we pray, amen. 
Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.